Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I can think of just two examples already this year. Elderly ladies who've come into hospital with pneumonia. So they've got a chest infection. It's really common in the elderly, unfortunately. And they were both pretty unwell with their pneumonia. But then they got really sick because it turned out they had liver cirrhosis. And when you have liver cirrhosis and you become unwell, you can get really unwell because you don't have that reserve to clear the toxins out of your system. And we're used to seeing that in patients with alcohol problems. But now we're seeing it in lovely little old ladies ladies who come in with pneumonia and we do our scans we say well you've got cirrhosis of the liver we're usually explaining to their family members and they say well she hasn't touched a drop of alcohol in her life say well it's fatty liver disease it's the same message eat a lot of plants cut out the meat cut out the processed food whole food plant-based that's dr alan desmond and this is episode number 56 of the plant proof podcast friends welcome back hope you're doing well it's awesome to be here with you again for another episode of the plant proof podcast for new listeners welcome my name is simon hill i'm your host qualified physiotherapist and currently finishing my masters in nutrition i also created plantproof.com and at plant underscore proof on instagram to provide free information to help people navigate through the science and feel confident adding more plants to their plate. On this show, I sit down with folks from all walks of life, experts in nutrition and lifestyle medicine, thriving athletes, business owners, and more. The idea is to bring you into the conversation. So it's like you're in the room with me and together we can learn new things, challenge our belief system, and ultimately become more conscious humans. This week's guest on the show is gastroenterologist Dr. Alan Desmond, who I caught up with at the wonderfully executed Doctors for Nutrition conference in Melbourne. Alan is an absolute wealth of knowledge when it comes to intestinal bowel disease, or IBD, which includes ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, and other common gut health issues such as IBS, SIBO, and celiac. We cover enormous territory in this nearly two-hour podcast, and I am absolutely certain that it's going to be one you have to come back to again and again, not just for those with existing gut health issues, but for those feeding their family and wanting to build healthy guts and avoid complications. Our digestive system is so, so pivotal when it comes to our overall health, So I cannot stress the importance of getting to understand this area better and creating habits within your life that promote a happy gut. I hope you're pumped to meet Alan. Get ready for lots of knowledge bombs and I'll see you on the other side. Desmond, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the Plant Proof Podcast. 
Oh, it's great to be here. And I'm glad we could do it in person too. What a great opportunity while I'm visiting Oz for this conference. Fantastic. Yeah. Welcome. Welcome to Melbourne. Yeah. Thanks, man. Been here for a couple of days. Have you been here before? No. Um, I lived in Brisbane for a year back in 2002, 2003, when I was just a year or two out of med school and I was a young doctor. Absolutely loved it living there. You know, I mean, for an Irish guy, it was basically like a 12 month long summer. So I absolutely adored it. But um, I moved back, moved back to uh, Ireland then. Now I live in the southwest of England, but I've never been to Melbourne before. But um, I've got just a couple of days to enjoy it, but it's been gorgeous. When I arrived yesterday, I was feeling a bit jet lagged, actually. So I took a nice run around the Dockland area and just kind of saw, explored a little bit. And yeah, it's beautiful. City. And the weather's been, been superb. So oh, it's perfect. Yeah. 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 And now you've just poured yourself a coffee. Yep. What, what, is, what is your usual coffee like? What do, you, what do you drink back in Ireland? I'm not a coffee snob, you know. Um, so people ask me about coffee all the time. And it's funny, I was discussing this this morning at the conference with a few of the guys I was sitting with. And there's differing, differing opinions whether it's a health food or not. It's my last vice, Simon. I don't, I, I don't drink alcohol. I eat a whole food plant-based diet. Um, so I've given all that up. So I'm hanging on to coffee. Um, there was a really good review in the British Medical Journal just last year where they looked at, you know, several meta-analyses and kind of grouped together all of these studies that have been done on coffee consumption. And they essentially gave coffee in general a clean bill of health because overall, if you take a whole population and ask them all to drink three cups of coffee per day, you're going to see a reduction in coronary vascular disease, reduction in colorectal cancer, and a few other health benefits that we didn't used to associate with coffee. We all thought it was, you know, type A personality. Wow. Is, that, is it the coffee itself or is it that they're drinking that instead of something else? Yeah, that's, that's the question. And even in that huge meta-analysis, because they were looking at such huge numbers, they weren't able to kind of go into the details of it. They weren't able to say, you know, fresh brew versus instant. But they did include studies that tried to correct for other um, diet and lifestyle factors, like, for example, cigarette smoking or plant-based diet. But you're correct. I mean, there was a study published in the US maybe about 10 years ago now, which I've cited to justify my drinking coffee. And it showed that in the United States, if you are a coffee drinker, I think you are 36% less likely to develop precancerous colon polyps. Now, that's a really useful fact to justify this, this uh, cup of black gold that I'm tucking into here. But you just wonder, that's adding three cups of a plant-based beverage to the standard American diet. So, you know, the, the, the benefit to someone who's already in a whole food plant-based diet might be pretty incremental. And, you know, for some people, coffee just doesn't work out. I mean, we all know about the caffeine yeah, sure. in coffee. I mean, caffeine is just one of thousands of phytonutrients and bioactive substances that are in a cup of freshly brewed coffee. But we always talk about the caffeine. And certainly some people with gastrointestinal problems or irritable bowel syndrome may find that if they have one or two cups of coffee, it kind of aggravates their tummy, makes them need to rush to the bathroom. And some people may find if they have one or two cups of coffee that they're super sensitive to caffeine, makes them feel anxious, uh, interferes with their sleep patterns and everything. So it's not for everybody, but you know, I enjoy a cup or two a day. Well, I'm pleased to hear that because I do too. Yeah, <laughs> we're on the same page. I actually, I grew up here in Melbourne. Is is very much known 
for its coffee. Yeah. Um, so oh, I've seen that. It's just like every second, every second yeah. shop is a coffee shop. And I'm ple- I haven't seen a Starbucks yet. No offense, Starbucks, but there's like tons of independent coffee shops here. The conference center is about a seven minute walk from where we are right now. I think it's like five awesome coffee shops between here and the conference center. And yeah, I want to try them all. Yeah. It's pretty hard not to get a good coffee. Yeah. If, you, if you wander down to any of those cafes, I'm sure you'll, you'll be surprised. Now we're going to be going to jump into the to gastrointestinal issues and the management, what you're seeing clinically mm. from IBD all the way through to things like IBS, like you got um, SIBO. And okay, whatnot. cool. But before we, we sort of dive into that, I'd love to understand how you actually ended up in this place and, you know, being an expert, particularly in inflammatory bowel disease, having a passion for helping people manage their gut health. Mm. What was your sort of pathway from being a kid through to becoming the the doctor and finding yourself in the place that you are now? Yeah, well, I guess, that I mean, as a kid, I grew up in Ireland in a little village called Blarney, which is sort of famous because we've got the Blarney Castle and the Blarney Stone, so it's a tourist town. But I pretty much grew up on, you know, pretty standard Western diet, meat and two veg. My mom made an effort to cook us fresh food all the time. But, you know, we would have plenty of chicken nuggets and, you know, like little uh, Findus crispy pancakes, or like hot pockets and that sort of thing. Just convenience food, you know. But my mom made sure that we um, had fresh food every day. We were lucky to live near our school. So we were able to pop home and see mom and have a home cooked lunch every day. So really, we got quite a good start. But it certainly wasn't a plant-based diet. Growing up as a kid... I always had this kind of secret ambition to be a doctor. I I wasn't the kid who was going around saying, oh, I'm going to be a doctor, guys. It it was kind of a secret ambition. And I I was thinking about this recently, actually, a friend of mine, Andy, um, Andrew Davis, who presented at the conference this morning, um, asked me about this yesterday. And when I was born, I was born with a really severe respiratory problem, this um, respiratory distress syndrome. So I was a very unwell newborn baby. And it was, um, you know, it was, so the first thing they did, it's Ireland, they called a priest. So I was baptized and named and they didn't expect me to survive, you know? And so when I was a kid and, you know, when you're growing up, you ask your mom and dad, oh, tell me about the day I was born. You know, do you want to, you know, kids love hearing, I've got three kids. They love hearing that story. Yeah, Yeah, sure. So whenever I heard that story, it was a story of a very sick baby who wasn't expected to survive. And so I always had this, um, this idea that the health professionals, the doctors and the nurses had saved me. And you we're know? heroes. And we're heroes. Yeah. And, and, you know, it was um, not that it defined me by any means, but it was, it was part of my story. And you were thankful, I guess, for that. Yeah, exactly. And really impressed. And then as I got older and, you know, you go to visit your, your uncle or your grandmother in hospital when they're unwell, you go to visit whatever, bring them you know, like flowers or whatever. And I remember I would go into the hospital, into the big university hospitals about five miles from where I lived. And I would see these doctors in their white coats and they looked really busy. And when they came to the bedside, everyone was quiet to hear what they had to say. And it was obviously kind of like an important job. And even as a, a young guy, I recognized these guys look really tired. They must be working really hard to help their patients. And, and in a way that attracted me as well. So, um, so that's why I decided to become a doctor. And of course, a few years later, I found out why they looked so tired because I, I found myself working hundred hour weeks and 36 hour shifts. Okay. And um, really, yeah, I mean, the first five or six years out of med school were, yeah, that, that was, that's tough going, man. That, that's, that's a, a hard job to, to get through, you know? 
Where did you where did you do your undergraduate medical? Well, I, I as I mentioned, I grew up in Cork in Ireland, so University College Cork was local university. Um, it was my older brother had gone to study law, so I, I was thought I would go there to study. Also, it meant I could keep living at home, so I could keep having the home cooked meals even when I was at uni. Yeah. Um, I was lucky, even as an undergraduate medical student, um, there was a um, research center um, affiliated to the university. It was on campus. At the time, it was called APC. It's now called APC Microbiome Ireland. So at the time, uh, Professor Fergus Shannon and Professor Eamon Quigley, who at that time and still to this day um, are pioneers in the field of microbiome research. So those guys delivered lectures in our medical curriculum. And, you know, come to 2003, 2004, I graduated med school 2001. So after I came back from my year uh, working in Brisbane, um, so you already at that stage had an appreciation for the role of the microbiome yeah, we, it's almost ahead of its time, right, in terms of becoming mainstream. That's right. We were hearing about it, um, it you know, just here and there, just little nuggets. Um, we were hearing about it even as an undergraduate and the the APC Research Centre was right on campus. It was right, you know, it was like we could see it from, from campus. We'd like walk by it. Um, so we knew that stuff was going on. So it, you know, by the time I got to very early as a, you know, a doctor working in the hospital and I was going through my various rotations, you know, so you might do like three months urology, three months orthopedics, three months gastroenterology, three months care of the elderly. Um, I just happened by luck to have maybe more than my fair share of gastro rotations. So that got me into it because suddenly I'd like three gastro rotations in two years, you know, so I spent quite a lot of time in gastroenterology. And, and at that time with, were the sort of doctors that you were working under, was there a, a large appreciation for the role of, you know, of the gut microbiome in yeah, clinical practice? Absolutely. Because I was lucky enough to have Professor Raymond Quigley and Professor Fergus Shanahan as my, my, my boss or my bosses when I was working on the wards. So one of the things that I do a lot as a gastroenterologist is I perform diagnostic endoscopy. So it's one of the things that really attracted me into gastroenterology, actually, because we get to talk to the patient, hear their story, request some tests, and then we get to look inside and look at the living organ and we can look at your stomach. So you can connect the subjective, you know, feedback or what they're eating to what you're seeing. Absolutely. And you can relate their symptoms to the endoscopic appearances. And I get patients that come in for their procedure and they're also a little bit nervous, a little bit embarrassed. You know, it's, it's obviously, you know, it's tricky coming in for those procedures. People aren't for, you know, they're a little bit worried about coming in on the day. And we do the best we can to get people relaxed and the nurses are fantastic, et cetera. But they always say, well, what's, when will I get the results? I say, well, I can give you a result pretty much straight away. I can let you know afterwards what my impressions are. And that's a really nice thing about being a gastroenterologist. But when I trained, like my very first experience doing those endoscopy procedures, was training to do like a limited exam with a lower bowel called flexible sigmoidoscopy. But even, you know, in my first 10 times doing that, I was doing it for the patient, but I was also taking little tissue samples to go off to the lab for the microbiome research that was going on at our hospital. So it was kind of baked into my very early experience as a gastroenterologist. So it's kind of always been there in the background. And in terms of from, from, I guess, that stage of your career to now, how much extra training was involved to, because at that stage you were just training, right? Yeah. To become a fully-fledged gastroenterologist, what is sort of the body of work and the amount of time and years that you've had to put in? Yeah, so that? I was thinking about this recently. It's actually quite a long time. So I went into med school in 1995, graduated med school 2001. So I worked in hospitals 
at increasingly senior roles from 2001 right up to 2012. And I've been a consultant gastroenterologist, so leading a team um, since 2012 to now. So that's, that's uh, 19 years plus, an, plus another few, you know, so it's 20 odd years, uh, maybe 25 years. But once you decide you want to be a gastroenterologist, you're expected to complete a certain amount of um, continuing medical education each year. You need to attend a lot of gastroenterology conferences and hear about the latest treatments and the latest drugs and the latest risk factors for all these diseases that we treat. And also, I, um, I took two years out into a period of um, research and published quite a lot of papers. Um, at that time, I, I was involved in one uh, microbiome-related uh, research project, which was looking at the role of one particular bacteria in the pathogenesis of Crohn's disease. But most of my research was actually focused on diagnostic radiation. So that was like my pet topic for a couple of years. Um, so I was looking at, obviously, when you go to have an X-ray done, a CT scan or a CAT scan, you're exposed to some radiation. But we didn't really know how much radiation you would be exposed to. And particularly for patients with Crohn's disease, inflammatory bowel disease, they can get a lot of scans over the years. So I, I teamed up with a wonderful team of researchers. Again, we were working under Professor Fergus Shanahan. And we basically constructed a gigantic database and uh, calculated how much radiation people were being exposed to over a period of years. And actually, the numbers were quite frightening because it's a small number of our patients um, over, say, 10 years having Crohn's disease, we're literally having dozens of CT scans. Wow. And cumulatively, we're probably getting exposed to sort of Hiroshima levels of radiation. So has that changed you know? now, the protocol for diagnosis? Yeah, it has. Yeah, it has actually. And the research papers that we published turned out to be quite influential. And we published those nearly 10 years ago. And it's really... Um, Personally and professionally, it's also really nice when I go to big gastroenterology con conferences, I still see our work cited in, in, in the talks because it really brought into the mainstream conversation in gastroenterology. So now we're more likely to use non-radiation uh, imaging studies like ultrasound scan and MRI scan. And also one of the um, papers that we were involved in was using ultra low dose CT scan. And since then, actually, the technology has improved. So the amount of radiation that you get from CT scan now is much, much less. I know that you're a very evidence-based practitioner. Mm. You post a lot about science. Everything that you're, you preach and no doubt what you do with your patients is based on the, the evidence that's mm. out there. Is it this point in your career where you were learning how to to navigate your way through the clutter of evidence, what's good evidence, what's not so good evidence and um, interpreting that. Yeah, we had a, we, um, had a great um, school of epidemiology associated to our medical school. So we had to do, I think it was a three to four month rotation in the school of epidemiology where we did what's called the CASP program, the critical appraisal skills program. So we had to learn all about how scientific papers are written about, you know, how to interpret p-values what relative risk versus odds ratio means and how to say what a cohort study, what a case control study is, what a randomized control study is. So we were kind of given those skills so that as we moved forward in our medical career, we would be able to interpret the evidence accurately. And then later on in my career, I went on to um, have to sit down and write these papers. You know, so we had to, we published maybe eight or nine papers during that two years when I was uh, fully focused on research and all the stats and everything needed to be gone through with a fine tooth comb. So yeah, I was quite lucky. I've often heard um, medical practitioners, and I'm sure it's not the norm, but I've often heard medical practitioners saying, well, we didn't really get trained on how to read scientific papers. But my university was very hot on that, actually. So we had, to, had this whole 
extended module on that. And those skills have now, because I, I've developed this really keen interest in giving my patients evidence-based dietary advice. And you're quite right. I, I don't advise anything unless I've seen a paper on it or if there's a plausible mechanism and some epidemiological data and ideally some interventional data. But those skills that I learned, gosh, 15 years ago now. So helpful. I'm using them every day. And we're going, we're going to dive into, I guess, where the science lies and particularly how nutrition affects the etiology or the pathology of a number of these gastrointestinal issues. But firstly, from a personal point of view, I know that you're an advocate for a plant-based diet. When did things shift on your own plate? At what, at what point did you decide, okay, there's enough evidence out there that I've read that tells me this is the way that I should personally eat and before you're even thinking about your patients? Yeah, well, it actually happened kind of in parallel because I guess we can talk about how my patients brought me to a whole food plant-based diet later, but it was in parallel because for me, because all of my patients have gastrointestinal disorders and I have a very keen interest, particularly in inflammatory bowel diseases, that's Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis and actually managing patients with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. That was the little niche within gastroenterology that really attracted me to choose that as a specialty. And when I see those patients, even, you know, when I was, you know, the lowly junior member of the gastroenterology team, and now 15 years later, I'm the consultant gastroenterologist and I'm guiding their care. So taking, for example, inflammatory bowel disease. So these, when we tell people that they have inflammatory bowel disease and we discuss the nature of the, the disease with them, and we t- tell them about the medications we have and the procedures they're going to need. We tell them about their follow-up appointments scans that might be involved, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we have to, it's, it's difficult because you've got to, or, usually these people are pretty well, and now they've got this condition and you have to orient to them, to the fact that they've got this, this chronic disease. When you say they're usually pretty well, it's, it's a chronic disease by nature, but are you saying that like the symptoms can come on quite quickly yeah. and they have to deal with this in a Yeah. Short so, you know, time. you know, maybe I should just describe what inflammatory yeah, disease let's, is. Let's go through, yeah. um, Crohn's disease and yeah. ulcerative colitis. So, inf- so inflammatory bowel disease, IBD, that refers predominantly to two conditions, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, Crohn's and UC. So in both of those conditions, sections of your gastrointestinal tract become red and sore and inflamed and dysfunctional. In ulcerative colitis, it only affects the large bowel or colon. In Crohn's disease, it can affect any part of your gastrointestinal tract. So it generally affects the small bowel and the large bowel. But in Crohn's disease, you can get inflammation anywhere from your mouth right down to your bottom end. Also in Crohn's disease, which can make it um, a lot more uh, tricky and difficult to treat than ulcerative colitis, the inflammation can go through the walls of the bowel and into adjacent structures so people can get abscesses and focuses of infection. So these are really not very pleasant conditions to have. People with inflammatory bowel disease tend to have abdominal symptoms or pain or diarrhea, or they have chronic infections and they're on antibiotics a lot. Um, When we look at Crohn's disease, about 50% of patients with Crohn's disease will ultimately end up having sections of their diseased bowel removed. And about 20% of patients with ulcerative colitis will end up having a colectomy. That's an operation to remove their large wow. bowel. So, so these, are, these are hugely impactful. 
But here's the thing. So I've just described dreadful medical conditions, you know, and I guess a lot of people in inflammatory bowel have a very good quality of life and we're, we're really quite good at treating these conditions now. But most people with inflammatory bowel disease do not describe their quality of life as excellent or very good. They fe- they're, you know, they're subpar. And these, these diseases are both generally diagnosed when people are quite young. So the median age diagnosis is only 30. So people are young, they're productive, they've got jobs, that maybe they've got young kids. So they're in their really productive years. And suddenly, out of the blue, they develop gastrointestinal symptoms. And before they know it, they're sitting in front of a guy like me explaining all about these medications and everything. So I explain about all the medications, et cetera. And we have a lot of medications that we prescribe to people like steroids and immune suppressants and these kind of advanced drugs like biologics and uh, JAK2 inhibitors. And don't get me wrong, the medications are really good and they really get people out of trouble, uh, often quite quickly. Um, And I prescribe them all the time. Um, But patients always ask in those first, because the first year is particularly difficult because people kind of come to terms with that. They got this chronic disease. So they always ask the same question. Is there anything I can do with diet doc? And I've been hearing people ask that question for the last 15, 19 years now as a doctor. Just quickly, what's what's the, so we can sort of paint the picture here. What's the incidence of of developing these like, and I think we're about to jump into it. Yeah. But are people, are certain people predisposed? Is there any genetic connection to this or is it mainly lifestyle that would see someone in their early 30s develop this, yeah, so, you know, out of nowhere almost? So when I was in med school, we were taught that, um, say, Crohn's disease is like a perfect example of an autoimmune condition. You've gotten unlucky in the genetic lottery. There's something wrong with your genes. There's something wrong with your immune system. So your immune system is attacking your own gut and causing damage. But in 2019, I would argue that inflammatory bowel disease and Crohn's disease are perfect examples of diseases of the modern Western diet and lifestyle. So we, a few years ago, the, there was this huge genetics project. So the, the IBD Genetics Consortium, I think they published about two years ago. So they looked at, they did a complete genetic analysis, I think on about 30,000 people with inflammatory bowel disease from like 19 countries. Crohn's disease and ulcerative Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Yeah. So they, they wanted to kind of map out the entire genome for these people to find out what's the genetic story here. Is there some commonality Exactly. Is there some genetic marker that these people have in common? And, you know, they did find like three or four genes that are more likely to be present in people with inflammatory bowel disease. And if you have inflammatory bowel disease and you've got one of these genes, it can give some indicator as to whether you're going to have ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. Those genetics are going to give some indicator of which part of your bowel is going to be affected, your large bowel or your small bowel. But when it comes to predicting the severity of disease, who's going to develop abscesses? Who's going to develop narrowings and strictures? Who's going to need surgery? Who's going to need the immunosuppressive drugs? The genetics told us nothing. And in, the, in that paper that, that was published a couple of years ago, in the discussion written by the authors when they published their results, so these, the, this is a whole consortium of genetics enthusiasts who've spent years doing this analysis even in their discussion, they stated the genetic factors described by our study are likely to have limited impact and dietary and lifestyle factors are likely to be more important. Would that suggest that some of those 
some of those genes, some people who do not have inflammatory bowel disease may carry those genes, but through their lifestyle, they, they see different gene expression. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Or like a lot of these modern lifestyle diseases, we may have a genetically loaded gun, but nothing happens unless diet and lifestyle pull the trigger. And what's been happening through the latter 20th century and the early part of the 21st century is we've been pulling the lifestyle trigger and the diet trigger really, really hard. So these conditions, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, really only appeared in the medical literature in post-war Europe and post-war US. So they weren't really an entity before then. And so the physicians and surgeons who were dealing with them were just, you know, a little bit baffled. You know, in fact, when the when ulcerative colitis first developed, people thought it was a psychological problem, like a lot of illnesses. You know, they thought that people had weak moral fiber, you know. But now, in 2019, one in 165 people in the United States have inflammatory bowel disease. It's like one in 300 in most westernized countries. And we saw the incidence of inflammatory bowel disease explode in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s in Europe. And then as country, other countries kind of westernized their dietary approaches, we saw the same thing happen to them in subsequent decades. So in Japan, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, inflammatory bowel disease. In Egypt, in the 90s and 2000s, we see inflammatory bowel disease. And we're seeing it in countries like Saudi Arabia now, where they're advertising for gastroenterologists from Europe and the US to come and work in Saudi because they're now, you know, having to deal with inflammatory bowel disease, which is a condition that they just aren't familiar with because it's 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 a new disease to these countries. That's where these epidemiological sort of population studies are very, very handy, isn't it? Hugely. And when you look at the epidemiolo- epidemiological data about, so what's going on? Why, why are these disease? What is it about the environment? First of all, it was very obvious to clinicians that there was some form of dietary component here. So they looked at this in Japan, a group, uh, uh, Dr. Called Shoda and his colleagues, about 15 years ago now, that they published an epidemiological study of the incidence of inflammatory bowel disease in Japan over three decades. So they looked at regions of Japan they looked at their dietary intakes, they had really good dietary intake data, and they looked at the incidence of inflammatory bowel disease. And their conclusions, the intake of animal products, particularly meat and dairy, were highly correlating with the incidence of inflammatory bowel disease. When a region within Japan switched its diet to meat-heavy, dairy-heavy from the kind of traditional rice-heavy diet, inflammatory bowel disease appeared. And if we look at so a separate study that's, that showed the same thing, was a study done in France, the E3N study. So they took the E3N study was one of these um, cohort studies where they had a large cohort, I think several tens of thousands of healthy middle-aged French females. And they followed them for like 15 years and just looked at their dietary intakes and their, their long-term disease outcomes. And they again found that the people in that cohort with the highest intake of protein were three, more than three times more likely to develop inflammatory bowel disease. And the correlation was only there for animal protein. So if you were getting a lot of vegetable-based protein in, it didn't increase your risk of inflammatory bowel disease. But if you're getting a lot of animal protein, and they um, particularly focused on meat and fish in their results, they said the people who are taking a lot of meat and a lot of fish are tripling their risk of developing inflammatory bowel disease. interesting to look at some of the Western bodybuilding populations. Yeah, who are slamming absolutely. protein, slamming animal products. Yeah, yeah. What the what their gut health looks like. The um, group within that E3N study 
I think they rate it high protein intake is about 2.1 grams per kilo, which I'm sure a lot of bodybuilders are exceeding on a daily basis, you know, and they're probably going for the animal based stuff, right? The whey and what have you. Okay. So that sort of brings us back to where we sort of diverted from. The patient asks you, doc, what can I do from a lifestyle point of view outside of medications to help reduce, manage, or try and get rid of this disease that I've all of a sudden um, developed? What advice do you give to them? Yep. And and in particular, I think what the listeners will find really interesting is within that advice, if you're, if you're recommending to eat more of something or less of something, why is that? And, and at, at a gut level, microbiome level, you know, what's the impact of removing something or adding more of something? There's three things. Um, we we t- just touched on, you know, a fraction of the epidemiological data, but there's also been intervention studies um, looking at inflammatory bowel disease and looking at dietary interventions. And if I want to give someone evidence-based dietary advice for inflammatory bowel disease, so there's three things I focus on. Number one, is reducing your intake of animal products. So I want your diet to be as plant-based as possible. So I want you to give up the bacon. I want you to give up the red meat. Then I want you to give up the fish. And I just want you to give up poultry. And I would ideally like you to be eating as plant-based a diet as possible. And dairy and eggs as well. And then dairy and eggs as well, because those are just animal protein in another form, right? So that's just getting rid of the animal-based products and moving into eating more plant-based products. Now, we talked earlier about the epidemiological data. The epidemiological data also shows us that fiber intake not only protects from developing inflammatory bowel disease, but fiber intake is also important if you're going to get better when you have inflammatory bowel disease. So there's a, a, we can go into the mechanisms for that later if you like. Yeah, yeah. So it's, so it's um, get the meat out, get the animal products out, get the plants in and get the processed food out. So there's three... Processed food's a big one, right? Like what, what's the percentage of, in Western populations of calories that people are getting from processed foods and what's the impact that's having on their gut? So the ultra-processed foods, we're talking about chips and crisps and, you know, processed meats and soft white bread that says soft forever, you know. Unfortunately, within the UK where I live and work, 55% of calories come from ultra-processed foods. So those are ultra-processed foods which can sit on the shelf for months on end. And those foods have no phytonutrients and no fiber in them. They've often got a lot of animal products. They've got a lot of even dairy. You know, it doesn't look like it's an animal product. It's milk solids. But it's got milk solids, et cetera, added to it. But beyond that, you've got all these additives and emulsifiers and uh, flavor enhancers added. So what's... what what so let's talk about, bad about them. It's so let's talk about emuls- emulsifiers, right? So again, Crohn's disease. So if we look at patients with Crohn's disease, one of the abnormal things that's going wrong with, with them is they have this particular bacteria in their gut microbiome called adherent invasive E. coli. Okay, it's a particular type of E. coli. We don't really see it in healthy individuals, but it's quite predominant in the gut microbiome of patients with Crohn's disease. And in patients with Crohn's disease, that little bug adheres onto the lining of the gut. It invades through the gut. It gets transported through the lining of the gut, through the gut, the gut barrier um, by these little uh, M cells, these micropore cells. And it gets in, it meets the immune system and it triggers an immune response. Then there's an immune response against that particular bacteria, which ends up causing collateral damage to your gut lining. So that's an, un, that's an abnormal disease process. So a few years ago, some researchers took um, sections of bowel 
that have been removed from patients with Crohn's disease. They put it in a medium, so it still thinks it's, you know, it's in the body. And they exposed it to normal levels of this adherent invasive E. coli. And then they bathed that solution in emulsifiers. So the, the normal sort of dietary concentrations that you'd get from processed foods of an emulsifier, in, in this case, they use polysorbate 80. So that's chemical that's added to food to make it soft and creamy and feel pleasant in your mouth. Okay. And what they found was that the adherence of those bacteria was increased by about 70% just by putting emulsifiers into the system. So those processed foods are accelerating the disease process in patients with Crohn's disease. A separate group of researchers kind of did the same sort of experiment, but rather than using emulsifiers, they used maltodextrin. So maltodextrin is an artificial carbohydrate. It's manufactured in factories. It's like a white powder and it's added to food to improve its flavor. So they took the same thing and you've got this abnormal bacteria adhering to the lining of the bowel. What they found with the maltodextrin was it just made that bacteria adhere to the lining of the bowel. So maltodextrin makes that bad bacteria stick on. The emulsifiers help it to get through the system. So those are just two examples of how processed foods can really, under the microscope, can visibly exacerbate or predispose to Crohn's disease. And in fact, the researchers who were looking at the emulsifiers, they repeated the same experiment, but they exposed the same setup to dietary concentrations of plantain and broccoli. Okay, specifically plant polysaccharides from those foods, stuff called pectin, which is often used to set jams and things like that. And they found the opposite. So broccoli and plantain down-regulated this disease process, cutting the abnormal um, invasion of this um, nasty bacteria by over 50%. So that was like a really clear demonstration. Just, you know, just one little, this is a polygenic disease with lots of disease processes going on. But they were able to show that processed foods exacerbate and accelerate this and whole plant-based foods reduce it. It's a beautiful example. Yeah. And in fact, those researchers wrote a letter to the Journal of Crohn's and Colitis and said, look, we've cracked it, guys. Emulsifiers are causing Crohn's disease. And they produced some nice charts where they looked at all these countries and they charted their annual emulsifier consumption and charted against the incidence of inflammatory bowel disease, particularly Crohn's disease. And the correlation was there. And of course, they were right in some ways, but it's not just the emulsifiers. It's also our meat-heavy diet, our dairy-heavy diet, our ultra-processed foods, which contain all these other junk chemicals, which have no business mixing with our gut microbiome. But also it's our fiber deficient diet, which is another huge part of the pathogenesis of inflammatory bowel disease. Yeah. So it's hard to really pinpoint it on, on one thing. It's an overall diet. No, you're right. But, but the, so when I trawled through all of this research over the years, because I was trying to give my patients an answer when they say, what can I do with diet doc? And I wanted an evidence-based answer because I didn't think we were very good at giving them an evidence-based answer. What I've just described to you, what have I just described? A diet that eliminates or restricts animal products and dairy, provides fiber, particularly fruit, and eliminates processed foods. And it makes sense. That's a whole food plant-based diet. So I was recommending to my patients that they have a whole food plant-based diet before I'd even heard that phrase. And so, how had you started to make changes on your own plate at that time? Oh, hugely. Yeah, hugely. Um, so the more I read these research papers, 
And okay, so my focus was inflammatory bowel disease, but often the focus of the research papers isn't specifically IBD. So I ended up reading about the role of these same foods in things like fatty liver disease, which causes cirrhosis, in diverticulitis or diverticular disease, um, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, and colorectal cancer, which is something I'm very heavily involved in at work, unfortunately. Um, I probably have to sit down with maybe two people a week and tell them, I'm sorry, I've just diagnosed you with colon cancer. When you're doing a colonoscopy. Yeah, and we have that chat afterwards, and that, that's always a difficult conversation. What's the the prognosis of that? It, and- you know, it can be really good, actually. So um, I'm involved as a, so I do a lot of screening colonoscopy. So I see people who are well, they're coming in for a check, and we quite often do pick up, well, we very often remove precancerous polyps, which is great. But we do sometimes develop or diagnose patients with cancer. But usually in the screening setting, we're diagnosing people earlier than they would have otherwise been diagnosed. And if colon cancer is caught early, it's potentially very treatable. But at my unit, if you come in for a screening colonoscopy, whether it's me or one of the other, you know, uh, several colonoscopists, and if you come in for a screening colonoscopy check for cancer and there's no cancer, we post you out a leaflet a few weeks later that talks to you about the dietary and lifestyle things that can help prevent colon cancer. And it turns out that eating your beans and greens and maintaining a healthy body weight and avoiding red and processed meat, especially processed meat, and eating nuts and legumes, it turns out that the evidence shows that the benefit of those interventions in terms of preventing colon cancer are far more powerful than attending for a screening colonoscopy. Now, you should still have your screening colonoscopy and different countries have different protocols and different age groups. So please have your screening colonoscopy when you get to that age group or if you have any symptoms, but please get your diet. What is that age group? Well, in the, in the UK, when you hit 55, you're asked to come in for a limited camera test to the lower bowel. And between the ages of 60 and 75, you do like a stool test at home to check for any blood or soon to be genetic material that indicates cancer. And if you come back positive, you get invited in for a colonoscopy. But different countries have different protocols, but they're all evidence-based. But I'm just really proud that at my unit, when you come in for that test now, you, you will, if, if, as for most people, there's no cancer, there's often polyps. So they get that information leaflet afterwards. And yeah, these are already motivated people. They've come in for screening colonoscopy. So they ought to know that eating a portion of beans per day can reduce their risk of getting a further precancerous polyps by over a third. So they need that information. So gladly we give it to them. I guess that's coming back to the difference between an acute healthcare model and chronic being, you know, more preventative um, and giving people the information so they don't wind up with it in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Which is great to see because it's, it seems like across the world we're hearing more and more about that. And there's, you know, doctors like yourself and all the doctors at this conference that we're at down here in Melbourne who are very much all about lifestyle medicine. You've, you've talked about various foods to add that you'd like people to, to eat more of, ones to avoid. And I've got some specific questions around those that I know the listeners will be super interested in for example, like um, lectins or, you know, plant paradox. Oh, lectins, like the, can we do the plant um, paradox? Yeah, we'll do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but before we do that, I want to sort of jump back to IBD mm. and these patients who, who come in and ask you about dietary changes, they go away and, and make changes and they do exactly what you say. What, what do they notice in terms of their symptoms? Well, the first thing that you need to realise is I've got to, like anything, 
I've got to meet patients where they are. Okay. So I've already mentioned that in the UK and in, it, it probably the same in Australia, probably the same in the United States, we've got like 55% of calories from ultra-processed food. We've got in the UK, I think the um, average bacon consumption per adult is about five kilos per year. And the vast majority of people are getting um, far less than the recommended 30 grams of fiber per day. Okay. So it's, and also we know those dietary patterns predispose to inflammatory bowel disease. So when I meet my patients with inflammatory bowel disease, if when we start into the dietary conversation, I, I have to start, I feel I need to start just with baby steps. Absolutely. You know? So there's no point in me just taking out the China study and putting it on the desk because it'll, it'll just overwhelm people, you know? So I, I usually start with three simple questions. And in fact, I, I ask these three simple questions at every new patient I see, whatever they've come in with in clinic. And I say, how many pieces of fresh fruit do you eat per day? How many servings of fresh vegetables do you eat per day? And how many servings of whole grains do you eat per day? And I really want someone to say three to each question. So that's my little very quick dietary survey. It only takes about 30 seconds to go through that. And by and large, Simon, those three questions will give us enough material to cover in the first consult. I almost always ask my patients with newly diagnosed inflammatory bowel disease to consider going dairy-free. Now, the consumption of dairy provokes inflammatory bowel disease through a number of proven mechanisms, not least of which is promoting unfavorable changes in the microbiome with an outgrowth of bacteria like with names like Bilophilia wadsworthia that can actually provoke the inflammatory process. But in fact, going dairy-free has been a treatment for inflammatory bowel disease for since the 1960s. So uh, Professor Sidney Trulove, who's one of the um, uh, trailblazers in the diagnosis and treatment of inflammatory bowel disease at the University of Oxford, right, did a little bit of my training back in the 1960s. So he published a paper, I think in the British Medical Journal in 1963, where he had identified that uh, some of his patients with this new disease, ulcerative colitis that they didn't really understand at the time, who weren't responding to the standard medical therapies, which at that time were mostly steroid-based, he'd identified that if he got them to go dairy-free, they got better. And then if they relapsed and went back on dairy, that within about a week or so, they got worse. Wow. Is, it making, is that the mechanism behind that around the animal protein or what, what is Yeah, well, at, at, the, at the time, he thought it was probably something to do with the fat and the protein, but he didn't really know. And But now we know that dairy products, particularly dairy fat, is very pro-inflammatory. And in fact, in models of inflammatory bowel disease, if you take an animal uh, study, honestly, I don't really like combat animal studies that much, but they're there. And if you take an animal study, where you have got an animal that's predisposed genetically to develop inflammatory bowel disease, and you put them on a high dairy fat diet, they get colitis. No dairy, no colitis. And not only do does high dairy intake, particularly dairy fat, provoke the um, pro-inflammatory uh, pathways that our drugs try and dampen down. It also um, provokes unfavorable changes in the microbiome. And actually lactose intolerance is incredibly common, as you know. And lactose intolerance tends to be more common amongst patients with inflammatory bowel disease. So if I talk to them about the how many servings of fruit, how many servings of vegetables, how many servings of whole grains, we can spend a little bit of time on that. And I'll have to chat with them about the overall health benefits of reducing or increasing. The next question is about dairy. Because really, if I can get my patients to go dairy-free in like the vast majority of cases, they see a very immediate benefit. Are they, I mean, in, in the in the UK, are people sort of open to that idea? Oh, very much so. I mean, 
it's become so much easier even in the last 12 to 18 months because there's like a nice big supermarket, mainstream supermarket, just a stone's throw away from my hospital and my clinic. And you can go in there. And I'd say, look, they've got soya, they've got almond, oh. they've got oats, they've got hemp. Just buy some and find which one you like. And um, there's some evidence actually that um, soy milk in particular can be of therapeutic benefit. Um, just again, from animal studies, so we, we need some clinical data in humans on that. Um, but I'd just say, go get whatever um, plant-based milk you like. And I'd like you to make that switch because patients will generally, particularly with ulcerative colitis, they'll, see a re- they'll perceive and feel a real benefit from that really quickly. And that just serves to reinforce the importance of dietary intake. And then they're there. So in the majority of cases, they'll come back for the next consult and they'll say, well, yeah, I've been, I've, you know, they've often cut out bacon and sausages and processed meat because that's relatively easy. And everybody knows those foods are unhealthy anyway. And they'll often have cut out the red meat and they're down to poultry and fish. They've also started eating whole grains because people just don't eat whole grains. They think carbs are going to make them fat. And is there associate and any association between body mass index and being overweight and these conditions or is that no association? No, there is. There is. And I mean, when inflammatory bowel disease was first described because um, it was described as a wasting disease because you'd fail to absorb calories. And, you know, when we didn't have any medications at all to treat these conditions, these were very much uh, conditions that would reduce your life expectancy. And you'd essentially develop intestinal failure, stop absorbing calories and waste away. You know, it must have been dreadful in like the 50s and 60s trying to get these patients better. But now that we've got uh, medications that can kind of keep a limit or keep a, keep a top or keep the inflammation dampened down, we're not really seeing that. We see it in some very rare cases, but we don't really see that. But I've sat in IBD case discussions for years where, you know, we have these discussions every week where we'll sit down and we'll run through difficult cases. And uh, predominantly over the years, I've heard people talking about medications and surgery. Diet hasn't been getting a look in, but that's changing now, thank God. But everyone would kind of go, oh yeah, this person has Crohn's disease, but you can see on the CT scan, or they have ulcerative colitis and they need an operation to remove their colon, but the surgeon is feeling a little bit of reluctance because they're very obese. And it's hard to operate on people who are very obese and there's an increased risk of complications. So people kind of view that as a paradox, you know, oh, you've got the bowel disease, but you're very obese. But it turns out it's the same disease process and it's the same predisposing factors. So it's the standard Western diet, high calorie, low fiber, high animal product, high ultra processed food. The same thing that's making these poor people obese is also giving them inflammatory bowel disease. It's also giving them non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and cirrhosis of the liver. It's also giving them coronary vascular disease. So it's we try to compartmentalize GI health from cardiac health, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's the same problem. And really, we just come back to recommending whole food plant-based. You know, I, I was lucky enough at the conference last night um, to sit down for dinner with Dr. Neil Bernard from PCRM. So I hadn't met him before. So I was at the speaker's table last night with a lovely conversation. And yes, he is a really nice guy, which everyone has told me he's a really nice guy. So we'd love to chat. And um, he told me just writing a book at the moment for, I think, for medical students. And he wanted me to look over the gastroenterology section, which of course I'm going to be delighted to do. And he said, because I'm not a gastroenterologist. And I say this to my like friends and colleagues who recommend a plant-based diet all the time. You are a gastroenterologist because you're recommending a whole food plant-based diet and a whole food plant-based diet is going to significantly reduce your patient's risk 
of developing Crohn's disease, colitis, diverticular disease, colon cancer, and cirrhosis due to fatty liver disease. So you don't know it, but you're a gastroenterologist. Yeah, I guess it's the the case with a lot of these doctors, whether they're a cardiologist or whatnot, the side effect of their prescribing that diet is improving other, other areas. That's right. The, the, the side effect profile of a whole food plant-based diet is pretty good. Okay. So tell me, why why is there uh, you know certain people or cookbooks and things out there which are very much pro-animal products in terms mm. of paleo or keto or even carnivore with messaging around these diets being healthy for the gut and helping with, you know particularly with healing the gut like is is this sounds in you know direct it's, it's a contrary of what you're talking about is there any science around consuming more animal products and gut health or where are where is this information derived from well there's a, there's a couple of things to cover there really um number one paleo diet so as I see that promoted generally, well, look, obviously it's probably got nothing to do with what people ate in the Paleolithic era, which was several million years long. And we could, you know, we've seen studies and fecalit studies and stuff. We know that people in the, in the Paleolithic era probably ate a wide variety of foods, depending on the environment they were living in. And that if they lived in an area where there was plants, they probably ate a lot of plants. And if they ate in an area where there were no plants, they probably didn't eat any plants because you basically just had to subsist on, on what was available. So when we talk about the, the uh, let's call it the modern paleo diet, so the diet that's promoted, it, it actually does have a lot of advantages over the standard Western diet because I think they cut out all the dairy. Yep. They cut out all the processed crap and they ask people to eat certain plants and eat them in abundance. So I'm on board with all of that. So there's, if you have a Venn diagram of paleo and whole food plant-based, there's a huge overlap. So if you are on a standard Western diet and you're eating a lot of chips and processed food and, and what have you, and a lot of dairy, and you move to the kind of classic modern paleo diet, I, I bet you're going to feel better. You're, going, you're probably going to have improved energy levels. Even if you have inflammatory bowel disease, you've taken out a lot of the stuff that is harmful, but you're consuming a lot of red meat. And that is certainly not a good thing for your long-term gut. So it's good, but it could be better. The, the, it's good, but it could be better. And it's, there's lots of aspects to the paleo diet that are probably beneficial. And when people make that shift, they're going, God, this is great. I, I feel so much better. My energy levels are better. I've lost some weight. Um, my bowel symptoms have improved. But in terms of long-term health, it's not a good option. Now, we saw papers published last year looking at health outcomes in huge populations followed for like 25 years. And those studies showed us very clearly that eating a high-protein, low-carb diet, especially a high-animal-protein diet, is going to take years off of our life expectancy. So in, in one study last year, they estimated, having looked at the data, that if you're an average 55-year-old, and if you were eating a kind of paleo-style, low-carb, high-animal protein diet, you've reduced your life expectancy by, by about five years because of your increased risk of coronary vascular disease, obesity, type 2 diabetes, and colorectal cancer. 
I'm sure I'm, I'm assuming that would extend to keto and carnivore as well. Well, well, those are the same. Those are like different, different variations, right? Of so, low carb, high. So those are low carb, high fat diets and low carb, high fat, high animal protein. We know that red meat and red processed meat are, are carcinogenic. So a few years ago, the World Health Organization uh, graded bacon and sausage and processed meats as a grade one carcinogen. The evidence that consumption of those foods causes colorectal cancer is undeniable. Okay. They rated um, red meat as a grade two carcinogen, probably causes cancer. Now, if you want to eat something that probably causes cancer, okay, go ahead. But you should be aware that it's probably going to give you cancer. If you're comfortable with that, go ahead. But if you are eating a paleo diet, you are consuming a food that's probably going to give you cancer. And we know from epidemiological studies and mechanistic studies that red meat, which contains carcinogens, pro-inflammatory heme iron, has deleterious effects on your gut microbiome, is going to increase your risk of colon cancer. So having a diet that is heavy in those foods is not a recipe for good long-term health, or particularly gut health. And we spoke earlier about the epidemiological studies from France, which showed that people with a high intake of animal protein were tripling their risk of developing inflammatory bowel disease. So although those things can work for the short-term, long-term, you're doing your gut no, no favors. Okay, so talk to me. We're talking about a so low-fiber, low high-fat, high animal protein. Is there, outside of IBD, with if we're looking at other... Um, gastrointestinal issues that, you know, you may see clinically. Is there any science that would support people increasing their animal protein and animal products in their diet from a gut health perspective? It's just the opposite. You know, I was um, reading a study when I was traveling over here from from the UK earlier this week. Um, so just published this week, a Dutch cohort study where they looked at a population um, and looked at dietary and lifestyle risk factors for developing fatty liver disease. So fatty liver disease is basically when your healthy liver develops deposits of fat within it. And the, having fat deposited in your liver isn't good for your liver health. It causes inflammation in the liver. So your liver function tests. When we check them in your so blood. this is non-alcoholic. Non-alcoholic. Yep. So this is no alcohol involved but you've got excess fat deposited on your liver. If we do blood tests on you, we can find no evidence that you've got a liver disease per se. You know, you don't have an autoimmune problem. You don't have a viral infection. It's not because you're drinking too much alcohol, but you've got this thing called fatty liver disease. And we see it in patients who are obese, particularly carrying too much weight around their middle. And we kind of view it as inevitable, okay? And in my practice on my gastroenterology ward, when I've got people coming in very unwell now, we're seeing patients coming in all the time. I can think of just two examples already this year, and we're in February, where we uh, the two examples were kind of elderly ladies, overweight, who've come into hospital with pneumonia. So they've got a, a chest infection. It's really common in, in the elderly, unfortunately. And they were both pretty unwell with their pneumonia, but then they got really sick because it turned out they had liver cirrhosis. And when you have liver cirrhosis and you become unwell, you can get really unwell because you don't have that reserve to clear the toxins out of your system. And you can become drowsy and encephalopathic and you can have problems with internal bleeding, et cetera, et cetera. And we're used to seeing that in patients with alcohol problems. But now we're seeing it in lovely little old ladies who come in with pneumonia and we do our scans. We say, well, you've got cirrhosis of the liver or we're usually explaining it to their family members. 
And they say, well, she hasn't touched, you know, a drop of alcohol in her life. I say, well, it's fatty liver disease. And in fact, fatty liver disease leading to cirrhosis of the liver. I, th- I think I read that it's the uh, second or number one indication for referral for liver transplant in females in certain parts of the United States now. So a study just published this week looking at dietary risk factors for developing uh, fatty liver disease. And the first startling thing, this was a Dutch study. They were looking at middle-aged people, I think between the ages of 20 and 70. I think they had about 1,000 people who they evaluated. And they reckoned that 21% of that population had fatty liver disease. And when they looked at their dietary risk factors, it was animal protein intake and processed foods. So I was looking through that paper and they were saying, okay, so your odds ratio, if you eat a lot of animal protein is like 2.5. Your odds ratio, if you eat a lot of processed food is, you know, whatever the number was. And as I was reading, I said, you could cut out the word fatty liver disease and you could paste in inflammatory bowel disease or you could paste in coronary vascular disease. It's the same message, no matter who does the study, whatever their agenda is, they're coming up with the, uh, with the same answers. Eat a lot of plants, go to plants for your protein, cut out the meat, cut out the processed food, whole food, plant-based. And did you see the Eat Lancet report I published did, just I a couple a, of months ago? A, uh, a blog on that. Oh yeah. man, fantastic. So it was, it's incredible. So for, for those of you who haven't watched Simon's blog, me included. Sorry, Simon. I've been so busy traveling this last week or so. I'll forgive you. I've got to check it out though. I've got to check it out. So the Eat Lancet report. So this is an independent group of scientists, medical doctors, and also climate change experts who were given a very uh, difficult remit actually. So they were asked to go off and study the body of evidence as it exists and to come up with a kind of a, a dietary blueprint for everybody in the world. So that includes the 800 million people in the world who are chronically undernourished and can't get enough calories where they live. And it includes the two and a half billion people in the world who are suffering from another form of malnutrition. So they're obese or overweight and suffering the consequences of that and everybody in between. And I was saying, actually, as I said, I was chatting to Neil Bernard last night and he hasn't read it yet. So I I was in the unique position of explaining the Eat Lancet report to Neil Bernard, which was quite surreal, but we had a really nice chat about it. There's sections of that report that read like Neil Bernard wrote them because they go through the various, so let's talk about protein, okay? So this independent panel of experts, international group, who were prioritizing human health, but also had an eye on planetary health, which is completely the same thing. What's the point in having a bunch of healthy humans if the planet is unsustainable? So they looked, they talked about protein. So we all need to consume protein. It's really important for human health. We probably need about 0.7 or 0.8 grams per kilogram body weight per day just to be healthy. So they looked at the various sources of protein. And when it came to red meat, and I think I'm quoting directly here, red meat is not essential. The optimal intake may be zero grams per day. The more red meat you consume, the more likely you are to have a chronic disease. The relationship is linear. But if you are going to eat red meat, please limit your consumption to 16 grams per day. Which is nothing. Which is nothing. So if you want, you can have 100 grams at the weekend. So maybe a little bit of red meat at the weekend, but it's optional. It's not essential And if you eat more than that, you will get a chronic disease. And they said, look, the evidence for very tiny amounts of consumption is a bit fuzzy. It's not conclusive. So we're going to give you your 100 grams a day. They then talked about poultry. 
And they said, yeah, poultry is kind of like a less dangerous version of red meat. So yeah, okay, you can have some poultry. And particularly if you live somewhere where that's your available source of protein, because obviously they're trying to provide a dietary blueprint for people who are living in areas with limited resources. So if that's your available source of protein, okay, yeah, have some poultry, but they suggested limiting your consumption to, I think it was um, about one third of a chicken breast per day. Okay. So that was them on poultry. Which is what, around 70 grams? Oh, it's less. I think it's like 30 or 30 30 and 50 grams. It's a, it's a, it's it's a morsel, you know, then they went on to eggs. And again, just remember, this isn't PCRM or Neil Bernard or Dr. Greger or you or me writing this report. It's an independent group of scientists. So they then turned to eggs and they said, okay, humans do need protein and there is protein in eggs and there's calories in eggs. But when we reviewed the evidence, we didn't see any studies that convincingly told us that eating eggs is safe because they've got so much cholesterol, et cetera, in them. And they commented that the studies that show that adding eggs to your diet is safe all look at adding eggs to the standard Western diet. So you you can't interpret them. So you're taking a bad diet and you put a little bit more badness on top. So they said, so we, you know, so basically we couldn't find any convincing evidence that uh, eating a lot of eggs is a safe thing to do. So again, if you need a source of protein and there's eggs available, eat some eggs, but eat one and a half eggs per week. And please note that if you replace those eggs with plant-based sources of protein, you'll actually be doing yourself a favor because you're going to reduce your risk of chronic disease. And then they went on to legumes, including beans, nut, or sorry, beans, peas, split peas, lentils, and soya-based foods. And they said, these are a great source of protein. They're wrapped up in plants. If you eat these foods, it'll reduce your risk of chronic disease, reduce systemic inflammation, reduce coronary vascular disease, reduce your risk of colorectal cancer. Kind of the opposite of everything we just said about animal products. I've got a question about those foods, but you keep going. Yeah. Back to and, and they said, well, eat about a kilo of these foods a week you know, eat them in abundance, which is what I've been saying to my patients for years, just thinking about inflammatory bowel disease. And then they came to nuts and they said, look, nuts are also, you know, a pretty good source of protein. They're also a great source of polyunsaturated fats. So, you know, they recommended eating about hundred grams of nuts per day. So in fact, they just described a whole food plant-based diet and these independent panel of experts. So I think the, the medical consensus is changing those guys didn't describe the classic paleo diet or the keto diet. They described the whole food plant-based diet. If you, I would highly recommend that anyone listening to the study who wants to go deep into that just goes to thelancet.com and you can get the whole text whole of PDF, that. PDF, yeah. The whole PDF is like 25 pages. It's heavily referenced. And if you want to go deep on that bedtime science, reading. bedtime reading, or if you've got an eight-hour flight yeah, uh, get the take, highlighter out. Get the highlighter out because it's just phenomenal. And there's also um, like a, a, a very colorful and very nicely produced kind of quick guide. Yeah. But I but I say if you want to, if you get really the want full to version. get the full version, definitely. And as you reading. said, it's it's an independent report. It's an independent leading report. scientist. And I guess in a in a sort of similar fashion, Canada Health then came out. Yeah, and release their well, eating recommendations. That's it. So, so Canada Health the eating recommendations, which are very heavily plant based, and in fact, just a few weeks before the um, the Eat Lancet report and the Canadian recommendations came out, there was a separate paper published, um, the Lancet, and that was by a scientific group that were sponsored by the World Health Organization. They're on the fiber, 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think their, that paper is going to, again, inform dietary recommendations around the world. So in that paper, they did a meta-analysis where they take lots of studies and combine the results. And they had data, long-term data from 4,500 people uh, that combined 243 papers. And they looked at whole unrefined carbohydrate consumption. They looked at fiber consumption. And they looked at rates of type 2 diabetes, obesities, coronary vascular disease, and again, colorectal cancer, something which is wrapped up in my, my work all the time. And their conclusion really was the more unrefined carbohydrates and whole grains that you consume, the better. And they didn't find an upper limit of benefit, actually. I think within the, um, I'd have to recheck the paper, but I think the, the people within their cohorts who were eating the most were getting like 60% of their calories from unrefined carbohydrates. But the benefit line was still going up, yeah. you know? So they just said, yeah, eat, eat, eat lots of unrefined carbs, eat lots of whole grains. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book, plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. Okay, so talk to me. We've got we've got that paper. We've got the epidemiological studies looking at like the blue zones mm. where commonality is eating a lot of legumes, for example. We've got healthy populations that eat a lot of unrefined grains. But at the same time, we've got proponents for perhaps paleo or keto diets. We've got plant paradox telling us that some of these foods have anti-nutrients, have lectins or phytic acid, which uh, disrupts gut health. Mm. Is there science to support that? Because I know this is a very confusing topic for listeners. There's a lot of um, sort of experts coming from different angles on this. Can you give me an overview of lectins, phytic acid. Do we need to be worried about, worried about them? So, so the lectins issue, so this is the uh, plant paradox phenomenon or theory. So the theory with the plant paradox, and I've read um, some of Dr. Gundry's book. I, I forgive the pun. I just couldn't stomach reading the whole thing. You know, I was getting GI upset reading it. I saw Dr. Gregor did a, a, a video. Have you seen that on YouTube? Yeah, I've seen that video and I tried to through his book. references. And, and Dr. Gundry messaged me on Instagram, which was very, very kind of him. And I, I think that he's probably well motivated and he, maybe he's seen some benefit in his patients and he's trying to help people. But the, the scientific basis for the concept that eating plants is bad for your health just doesn't carry water. And so the concept is that um, beans and legumes and many other plants contain this, these substances called lectins, which Dr. Gundry and his supporters have described as exerting a form of chemical warfare on your body. And they've linked them to thyroid problems, obesity, type 2 diabetes, and irritable bowel syndrome and gastrointestinal symptoms. Now, if you eat a raw bean an al dente bean, an uncooked bean, you are going to expose your gastrointestinal tract to these substances called lectins, and it'll give you diarrhea. There's no doubt about that. But Which is probably why it would be very unenjoyable yeah. to, to try and eat a raw bean. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Don't like, eat raw beans. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the there have been some studies, laboratory studies, demonstrating that if you consume um, raw lectins, 
um, that they can enter your bloodstream. There's also been some like Petri dish studies showing that lectins in the lab can bind to thyroid receptors and pancreatic receptors. But first of all, no one's eating like high quantities of raw lectins. So okay. they're taking that science. They're taking on. that science. And, you know, you could call that perhaps a plausible mechanism, but they're taking that science and turning it into this kind of global theory that we shouldn't eat these foods at all because they're going to cause us harm. I would have thought the next common sense approach, though, would have been to look at these foods in a form where people are eating them in yep. a cooked form yep. and analyzing the lectin activity. Yeah, but but of, but of course, if we look, I mean, I've just talked about the Eat Lancet paper, the WHO paper, you alluded earlier to the blue zone populations, the healthiest populations in the world. So if lectins, legumes, cause coronary vascular disease and are a form of chemical warfare on your gut, why is high bean consumption one of the hallmarks of the healthiest and most long-lived populations in the world who have the lowest risks of inflammatory bowel disease and Crohn's disease and colitis sense, and colorectal it. cancer and coronary vascular disease. And why, when the um, Eat Lancet Commission analysed, you know, all the data available to them on dietary intakes and health outcomes, why did they recommend that we eat a kilogram of legumes uh, per week? So th- that's the lectin paradox, so, yeah, because if you want to avoid lectins, you're going to essentially be restricting your fiber intake as well, right? Yeah, so yeah. And you know, I've 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 I posted on this on Instagram, and I did have some people, you know, contact me and said, "Well, you know, if, if you're on a lectin avoiding diet, you are allowed to eat a small amount of beans, but you have to cook them in a pressure cooker and for a long time. And yes, you do need to cook beans, but the whole, I, th- I th- and maybe." You know, maybe I'm doing Dr. Gundry and his proponents an injustice by by running it down, and maybe they have got some uh, something that might convince me. But it just doesn't hold water. It just doesn't stand up because when you look at a population level, it, it's the exact opposite. Now, for sure, I mean there are issues that people encounter when they transition to a whole food plant based diet for the first time. And you go to a lot of plant based events. I, I go to, to plant based events. And I, I'm also, um, I work with the um, Happy Pear guys, uh, Steve and Dave. I was going to ask you about that. Oh, we can talk about it later. Yeah, the happy gut. The happy gut. Yeah. I mean, we have so much positive feedback on that. One, when you, whenever you go to a plant-based event or often I speak to members of the public about Crohn's disease and colitis and, and, you know, a lot of the material we've covered today, almost inevitably a hand goes up and says, what about the gas and the bloating that I've been experiencing since I went? So run me through how someone, if they were transitioning, what are your tips for for approaching that and doing it in a way to minimize, you know, gas and bloating? Yeah, well, if you're on a standard Western diet and you are transitioning to a healthy whole food plant-based diet and you're doing it particularly in its healthiest forms, you're kind of doing a Forks Over Knives or Esselstyn or Gregor, daily dozen type type diet, you are going to overnight go from probably consuming about 18 grams of fiber per day to consuming about 45 grams of fiber per day. Okay. Now that's a good thing. And 30 grams is like the minimum. 30 grams is what most um, kind of national guidelines say we should aim for. But actually we know that like 90% of people don't even get there. You know, even in the studies, 
that show that fiber protects from developing inflammatory bowel disease. Even in those population studies, the people who seem to be protected from inflammatory bowel disease are getting like 28 grams a day, you know, okay. because those are the high, if you look at a standard Western population and you take the top 10% of fiber consumers, they're still not getting 30 grams a day. If you go to a healthy whole food plant-based diet, you're hitting 45 grams a day. Now that's a good thing. Um, you are eating the sort, you're, you're kind of getting close to the fiber consumption that we see in the blue zone populations that we see in populations in Africa that Dr. Burkett was writing about in the 1970s, where you don't see any diverticular disease, you don't see any colon cancer, you don't see any gallbladder diseases, you don't see any gallstones. So it's a good thing. But if your digestive system and your gut microbiome are not ready for that, because you've just had like 35 years of not eating like that, it's going to take, you know, several weeks or perhaps even months for your gut microbiome to get used to receiving all of this fiber um, talk, talk me through as well, just on that. So you, you, you're, you're consuming this extra fiber, mm. uh, prebiotics in there. Yeah. What What is the actual fiber when it, when it's getting down to the large intestine? What is it, what is its role? Why is it actually beneficial? Why are we seeing people that eat and and hit this thirty plus grams of fiber have better health outcomes? Yeah. So I guess the key thing there is short chain fatty acids. The nice thing about the gut microbiome is it doesn't just sit there; it makes stuff. You know, and if you feed it the right food and the right substrates, it's going to make stuff that's really beneficial to your health. So if you're eating enough fiber in your diet, um, the fiber uh, components that get down to your large bowel are then act as a food source to these healthy bacteria, these fiber loving bacteria. They ferment it and digest it and that's food for them. So they then multiply and they then thrive and you've got more fiber loving bacteria in your gut. And if you've been on a very low fiber diet, you're not going to have very many of them. And then after a couple of months on a high fiber diet, you're going to have lots of them. And what do they do with the fiber? They turn the fiber into, well, lots of beneficial substances, but the ones we know most about are the short chain fatty acids. So short chain fatty acids, um, substances like butyrate, acetate, and propionate, have and they're biologically active. They interact with our bodies in a very positive so way. So we absorb those from the large intestine. They get yep. absorbed into the blood. Well, they they actually bind to specific receptors on the gut lining. It's almost like taking a medication from in many ways. They're bioactive substances. So they interact with us and they they start off signaling mechanisms and they cause our gut to change what it's doing. And so for example, so the short chain fatty acids bind directly with various cells in the lining of the gut and set up other mechanisms to to uh, into play. So they do things like recruiting T regulatory cells, which are part of our immune system, which help to kind of tamp down immune reactions in the gut and throughout our body. They do things like increasing our production of substances like uh, uh, GLP-1 and peptide YY, which help to reduce our appetite and help to keep our blood sugars under control. They're, they're really you know, giving us this whole body benefit. They also um, promote our gut's production of its protective layer of mucin. And in the colon, they act as a direct energy source for the cells lining our bowel to help maintain that barrier between our gut contents and our body. And, you know, you can get down to the real nitty gritty on this. They also cause the lining cells of the gut to use up oxygen to kind of breathe if you want. So using up oxygen provides an anaerobic environment, which is the environment that the healthy bacteria like. So that, that's it's fascinating, this interplay between it's just, we need to eat the right foods to, to look after our bacteria. So, so, so we, we, eat, we eat some whole grains. The fiber-loving bacteria use those whole grains in our colon 
to produce butyrate. The butyrate binds to the lining of our gut. The lining cells start using up oxygen to provide an anaerobic environment, which the bacteria thrive in. So it's just this perfect symbiosis. So that's, you know, we, we are, the gut microbiome is just an essential part to being a healthy human. And again, when you look at these studies on what helps our gut microbiome, it just comes back to a healthy whole food plant-based diet. Now, we already talked earlier about the deleterious effect of processed foods and dairy and meat. You know, a few years ago, a group of um, researchers at Harvard did a study where they took um, healthy omnivores and they put them through two crash diets. So for four days, they went on a whole food plant-based diet. And actually, when I read the description that, I thought it sounded great. A lot of lentils, a lot of whole grains, everything plants. And for four days, they, on a different uh, time frame, they put them for four days on a complete carnivorous dairy diet. And during those four-day um, interventions, they actively measured their gut microbiome on a daily basis. Okay. Now, going on that completely, extremely carnivorous diet where it's just all meat and dairy produced pretty extreme results. So within a day, they started seeing a reduction in the gut microbiome diversity. They saw re- serious reductions in the short-chain fatty acid levels, as you would expect, because it's a very low, well, a zero-fiber diet. And they also saw changes in the gut microbiome with an outgrowth of bacteria that have been linked to, the, to causing ulcerative colitis. So they weren't inflammatory bowel disease researchers, but in their results, they said, hey, we've actually found another potential link, the known link between animal products, dairy products, and inflammatory bowel disease. This is like dysbiosis, they were. Yeah, so, so they were, they were um, so what we call these uh, pathobionts, these uh, potentially harmful bacteria. So there was more harmful bacteria growing. And when they had these people on a whole food plant-based diet, they saw increased microbial diversity and an increased growth of the bacteria that produce these beneficial substances. And they saw increasing uh, growth of the bacteria that love fiber, this, this stuff that we like. And so the, I think the title of that um, study was Dietary Change Rapidly and Reproducibly Influences Change in the Gut Microbiome. So as soon as you changed your healthy whole food plant-based diet, you're going to start seeing changes, healthy changes in your gut microbiome day one. But if you've gone from like 15 grams of fiber to 45 grams of fiber in a day, your gut microbiome isn't going to be ready for it. So do it slowly. Is that your advice? So do it slowly. So, so we eat like 21 meals a day, or excuse me, 21 meals per week. Maybe, maybe you do 21 a day. And if you're bulking, I guess, I don't know. No, but, so that's, it's, that's even too much. For me. <laughs> so it's 21 meals per week. You got your breakfast, your lunch, and your dinner every day. Now, if you, if you get one of Dr. Gregor's book, books or the Forks Over Knives books, or any of those books, of course, the meals are really healthy. They all provide a lot of fiber and they're really tasty and they're going to be good for you. But if you suddenly eat like that three times a day, you know, you are going, you're going to have some digestive issues in the short term while your system adapts. So why not start with breakfast? You know, why not for the first few weeks, just have these lovely whole food plant-based breakfasts from some nice oatmeal or anything with veg. And or some whole grain toast. I mean, and it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be complex or Banana intimidating. Whole meal toast. Banana on rye. That's like yeah. one of my favorite breakfasts. So um, you can keep it simple. Keep it simple. And then after a couple of weeks, why not start looking at lunch? And then after a couple of weeks, start looking at dinner. So give your system time to take some pressure off. You don't take some pressure. Do off. it overnight. And you know, it's not just about fiber. There's also the whole issue of FODMAPs. 
So FODMAPs are, well, that's a great acronym. FODMAPs are fermentable oligosaccharides, polyphosphodisaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. I think of all the doctors, gastroenterologists, even just the name of it, need to, if you've got the widest vocabulary and you have to pronounce all of these absolutely crazy words from, well, from, from, from what you've just said then, but also all of the bacteria, yeah. <laughs> the different probiotic strains. And- Man, well, I, I, it's crazy, right? Because I've like FODMAPs are such a big part of my practice. And also I work with some awesome dietitians. So I, I talked to you already about how I'd start the conversation with that. Obviously that conversation gets carried on by dietitians. I mean, uh, I couldn't get any work done without the awesome dietitians who are my colleagues. Uh, the FODMAP concept is so integral both to my clinical practice and also to the Happy Gut course that I run with the, with the Happy Pair and with Rosie Martin, uh, awesome plant-based dietitian who I work with. But I, every time I explain the acronym, I still stumble over it. Yeah. So if someone's <laughs> transitioning, they... You've just explained sort of about increasing fiber slowly. Mm. What do they need to know about FODMAPs? Yeah, so FODMAPs in a way are kind of like a subset of fiber, although Rosie will kill me for saying that because that's not actually scientifically accurate. But FODMAPs are small carbohydrates that your body doesn't digest. And so these are carbohydrates that make their way to your large intestine and we depend on our gut microbiome to digest them. And our gut microbiome ferments them and digests them and they're beneficial. They're prebiotic substances. They help us to produce these beneficial substances that we talked about earlier. But if you suddenly start eating a lot of them, because the fermentation process generates gas and liquid, if you suddenly up your FODMAP intake, you can develop a lot of bloating and change in bowel habit and issues, which is, and I I said earlier, you know, that hand goes up at these plant-based meetings and you say, what about the gas? So often the gas is FODMAPs. So there's different sorts of FODMAPs. And the thing is, a lot of the really healthy foods that we love to consume actually do contain a lot of FODMAPs. So if you pick out a recipe from your standard whole food plant-based recipe book, very often you're going to see some you're going to see some onions and alliums. You're going to see some garlic. There might be some little bit of hummus on the side, a little bit of avocado, you know? So these are healthy foods, but all of those foods happen to be very high in various forms of FODMAP. So if you bring all of those in very quickly, you, you, it's going to worsen the symptoms of bloating. Now, not everybody who transitions to a healthy whole food plant-based diet overnight would experience these problems. But if you are experiencing these problems, I think about maybe slowing down your transition and also looking at those FODMAPs. Now, it's really quite tricky to negotiate the whole FODMAP thing. And I'm not saying that people need to eat a low FODMAP diet long term. In fact, I'm saying the opposite. FODMAPs are a healthy thing. I'm not demonizing them in any way. Well, the low FODMAP, low FODMAP diet, correct me if I'm wrong, is more of like a, an elimination temporary type yeah. of diet, right? So we, we use it a lot in patients with irritable bowel syndrome. So if we have patients who have irritable bowel syndrome who are suffering from, particularly from a lot of bloating, we would use it in, in people with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth perhaps. Um, so they go through a pretty detailed process with the with their dietitian, which we've sort of reflected in our Happy Gut course, where essentially you take all of these FODMAP foods out for a while until things settle down. And then we introduce them one at a time to see how your system tolerates them and try and find thresholds. So for example, you may discover through the FODMAP process by taking them all out and then bringing them back in one by one, you may find on the week that you introduce foods that are high in, shall we say, um, polyols, which is one type of FODMAP, which you'll find in uh, like cauliflower and avocado, 
you may find in that week, ah, oh, that bloating issue that I had is coming back. So by the time you get to later in that week where we've built you up to one avocado per day, you may realize, yeah, actually one avo per day is just too much for me. I'm going to stick with like a quarter of an avo per day. I just have half an avo every other day. And then you've identified that those sorts of foods are an issue for you. It's quite a complex process, hard to, hard to DIY on this. But we do have, as part of the Happy Gut course, we've produced this free document, the Happy Gut Guide. Okay, I'll um, put that in the show notes. Yeah, I'll give, I'll give you a link to that because um, if people want to sign up for the Happy Gut course, that's fantastic. It's at happygutcourse.com. And you've got a bunch of cooking videos, oh, tutorials. It, so, so essentially, well, if you're familiar with Stephen Day from The Happy Pair, those guys are, you know, they're- They're amazing. They're a combined powerhouse. They're, they're so much fun to work with. They're so much fun. Are they from Dublin? They're, they're from outside of Dublin, from outside Wicklow, Dublin. next okay. county over. Yeah. Um, so they're from Greystones in County Wicklow. It's a small, like, like small town in Ireland. And 16 years ago, they went off for a year to find themselves. They went away kind of like- local sports heroes who were down the pub having a few pints every night and chasing girls. And they came back vegans. And they're identical twins. Identical twins. They wanted to change the world and they decided to change the world by opening a fruit and veg shop. So 16 years later, certainly in Ireland, and I think globally, but particularly back home in Ireland, they are like the public face of a healthy plant-based diet. Um, so and they're doing they, an, an incredible job. Oh man, they've been running their Happy Heart course for for I think about eight or nine years, and basically that is them and their recipes and shopping lists and support that basically was putting people on a kind of Dean Ornish style diet for four weeks and seeing tremendous results in cholesterol reduction, weight loss, uh, reversal of type two diabetes. And about a, about about a year ago, because I've become friends with the guys. Dave Crushing said, look, we should do a, a course like this for gastrointestinal health because we're always getting this question, you know, what about the bloating and my tummy? And so many people turn to a healthy whole food plant-based diet because of all the advantages we've described earlier in terms of long-term gut health. But they run into the speed bump where they start getting bloating and a little bit uncomfortable in those first few weeks. And unfortunately, I think that puts a lot of people off. So we wanted to come yeah, up. Yeah, because you could perceive that as, okay, this is not for me. Yeah. I'm going to have to deal with this, you know, forever if I eat like this. Whereas, um, you know, what you're describing is that this, a lot of this can just be a temporary transition as yeah, bacteria and is catching it, up. It can, exactly. And it can certainly be managed. Um, you're absolutely right. So we've designed like the six week program. We've got like shopping lists and there's like a, a Facebook support group. We've got weekly live Q and A's with uh, Steve and Dave and uh, myself, with Rosie, the dietitian. And we're just bringing people through the six week process. And we, we started earlier this year. And for a, a clinician who's used to one-on-one um, to be bringing, you know, for me to scale up and to be bringing this healthy whole food plant-based diet to like several hundred people in a month. It's, it's just been, it's been such a trend. And the feedback's been good. Oh, the feedback's been awesome. And we've had a kind of a mix, we've had a real selection or a mix of people coming to us. We've got people coming to it because they want to transition to a healthy whole food plant-based diet and they want to do it in a way that's going to be comfortable for their digestion. We've got people who are already on a plant-based diet 
but you know, have slipped into the junk food vegan thing and they want six weeks of healthy whole food plant-based recipes. And then we've got people who maybe just want to hang out with Stephen Dave, Dave online for a while yeah. and do the Q and A's and be part, find a community. So it's the whole thing around low FODMAP. Well, that's just a section of it. That's well, during the course, we've done a lot of educational modules, which cover a lot of the material, material we've talked about today, but the, the overall benefits of a healthy whole food plant-based diet, the gut health benefits, but also the overall benefits We've got some nice modules on, will I get enough protein? What about iron? What about eggs? What about B12? What about omega-3s? That's a great one for anyone that's new to this lifestyle. Yeah. So so we basically sat down together and kind of went, but what are like the top 50 questions that people always ask when they're transitioning to a healthy whole food plant-based diet? But the other thing is we just talked about FODMAPs a minute ago. And it's difficult to negotiate that. So Rosie and I gave Steve and Dave a kind of a, you know, a long list of foods that could be used, low FODMAP. And then they took their skills and turned that into like a six-week eating plan. Awesome. Um, So they've done all the hard work for us. So if you cook this meal, you've got a portion of that meal that's low FODMAP. So straight away, you're getting your 45 grams of fiber per day. You're getting a varied, healthy, whole food, plant-based diet, but it's designed to minimize the bloating issue. So would you say if someone is transitioning, just to recap what we're talking about, they're getting bloating and gas. Two things to look at is the amount of fiber that they're having yep. and the and looking at high FODMAP foods in their diet and potentially replacing some of those for low FODMAP foods for yeah, a period. Yeah, exactly. And it's things like, so for example, onions are pretty high FODMAP. Leeks are pretty high FODMAP, but leek greens are low FODMAP. And is the, is the goal to, to do that for a period of time where you can bring all of those high FODMAP foods back in to have a real diverse diet? Or is it to identify food that you're not agreeing with and just leave it out forever? No, it's, it's, it's the former. So during those first six weeks, we want to kind of ease people into it. So each week we introduce a new FODMAP and we gradually increase the amount of that FODMAP that's in the diet. And we give the users kind of a selection of foods that they can use to introduce that FODMAP. So it might be cashew nuts, or it might be a clove of garlic, or it might be some onions or whatever. So they can work those into the recipes. And by the uh, by the end of the six-week program, they've found out that, okay, there are certain food groups that I, we, we don't tell people to avoid them completely, but I guess like the example I gave earlier with the avocado, if you, if that person has found that, that the week when we've introduced avocado has been particularly bloaty or uncomfortable for them, then they may wish to just like have mm. avocado every other day rather than having two avos per day, yeah. which you could easily end up doing if you're using a whole food plant-based approach to eating. I mean, I love avocado. Absolutely. You know, but you, you know, need to have a smashed avocado while you're here in moment. Oh, absolutely. But some people can overdo it. Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. Now, that brings me to my my next question. We're talking here about people who are transitioning and mm. plants to their diet, but... What about if someone has been eating a largely whole food plant-based diet for a while and then develops some gas and bloating? 
is this likely to be a FODMAP issue? How does this just come out of nowhere? I've seen, mm. you know, various people online where they talk about adding animal products back into their diet and feeling better from, mm. a, from a digestion, a gut health point of view. Can you sort of shed some light on, on why they might be feeling better by adding some of those products in and, and also why someone who is eating a whole food plant-based diet could encounter some gut issues along the way? Yeah, sure. So I guess, well, the first thing I would say is that if you are on a healthy whole food plant-based diet, you are on a diet that is going to significantly reduce your risk of chronic disease and reduce your risk of developing uh, chronic gastrointestinal problems. Okay. But it doesn't make you immortal or bulletproof. It's not a magic, not a magic pill. Exactly. So if you are on a healthy whole food plant-based diet and you start to experience new gastrointestinal symptoms, go see your doctor because there's some very simple tests that need to be done. Um, and that might be like a test for celiac disease. It might be some stool analysis to check for inflammatory bowel disease, maybe just a routine panel of blood tests, or maybe even a scan of your tummy, or maybe an endoscopy or a colonoscopy, depending on your symptoms. And go and tell your doctor the story. They'll identify what we call red flags. And if they think there's a chance that you've got a disease process going on, they should help you to get to the end of that and maybe refer you to see your GP or to see a gastroenterologist, someone like me. So don't assume that you are disease proof, although you're certainly on a really healthy diet. That's number one. Number two, so we talk about a whole food plant-based diet and the emphasis has got to be on whole foods as well. As you know, it's completely possible to be on a plant-based diet, but also to be eating a lot of processed foods. So you might have your you know, your plant-based donuts or your plant-based mm. pizzas. It's easy for that stuff to sneak in and it's, all of a sudden what you think you're eating is actually quite different to say the daily dozen. Well, I, w- I, um, I just popped into a convenience store just down the road here and in the freezer, in the chiller, they, they, they like three or four different uh, vegan ice creams. You know? And they're super popular now, you know, as, as the demand for vegan products yep. is increasing, we're yep. seeing more and more processed vegan foods, yeah. which is enticing. Yeah. Probably. Well, it's, it's, it's great to see it, you know, cause it, oh, it starts the conversation. Certainly. But if you pick up, if you're on a plant-based diet, but you're, you, you know, you're having a tub of vegan ice cream every evening. Yeah, okay. It's probably better than eating a uh, dairy fat, but you've got to be aware there's a lot of flavor enhancers and emulsifiers. I think this is so important. I mean, I, I see in the next two or three years, even becoming more and more important as people are moving away from animal products, actually understanding the benefits from a science, where the science lies and what that diet looks like versus no, you're right. a processed diet. And, and you know, Sam, I've seen some studies that have been looking at various health outcomes. And in some studies, they, uh, the, you know, and I've seen this cited online where it says, um, the um, individuals who self-identified as vegan actually didn't have a positive health outcome, you know, but they're just asking people, are you vegan? You know, they're not asking, they're eating a healthy whole food plant based diet. You know, and if you go back to those blue zone populations, so there was certainly some vegans in there and, and whatnot, but the ones that were sort of 90%, 95% plant-based, these guys were eating whole foods. They weren't, yeah, they weren't if, going so, to buying a tub of vegan ice cream. Yeah, so if you look at the uh, Loma Linda uh, blue zones, um, so, you know, it's a lot of vegetarians, um, a lot of vegans, a lot of people who are consuming meat, but actually the kind of Loma Linda Adventists who are consuming meat were getting about 4 or 5% of the calories from meat and they were predominantly eating a healthy whole food plant-based diet. And even with that, the ones who didn't eat meat um, still have better health outcomes. Even that little bit, bit of meat can be deleterious. 
So it's so important that people need to maybe just refocus a little bit, get back on the healthy whole food side and a little bit less on the junk food side would be another potential pitfall. I think anyone who's on a healthy whole food plant-based diet and is experiencing health problems of any kind, they need to be sure that they're taking some supplements. Now, that isn't a marker of an inadequacy or a deficiency of a healthy whole food plant-based diet. I think it's just a marker of where we get our food now. So I know you're an advocate for supplementing with vitamin B12. So we get vitamin B12 from soil bacteria. Historically, um, when humans ate plants or, you know, just found food locally that they could eat and pick up and eat plant-based foods, um, there would be a little bit of soil on that. And we just need a tiny amount of vitamin B12 each day, maybe about two micrograms. And it's really unhealthy, really healthy for neurological health and for making enough blood and not developing anemia and having a healthy mind and a healthy body. So if you if you are on a healthy whole food plant-based diet and you're experiencing any digestive issue, please make sure you're taking a B12 supplement. And similarly, really consider taking a vitamin D supplement as well as potentially a um, omega-3 yeah. supplement. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So one supplement, I mean, I've got no financial ties to, or any interest in this uh, company. But the UK Vegan Society make a nice supplement called Veg One. And so Veg One contains 25 mics of B12, 400 international units of vitamin D, contains your daily allowance for iodine, which can be a little bit tricky to negotiate. And also seaweed. Having enough seaweed. Yeah, exactly. And maybe some people don't like having seaweed sprinkled on the food. Also contains selenium and B1 and B6. And it's dead cheap. I think it costs about like $2 a month. And it's, you can order it internationally. It's one pill a day. Take. I mean, yeah, like, like you said, a lot of that stuff besides B12 due to hygiene, mm. we, you could get, but it's, this is a bit of an insurance policy, right? Yeah, exactly. And you're right. You, you could get all those things by being diligent. diligent. And I mean, people on an omnivorous diet are subject to numerous vitamin I say deficiencies. It all the time. I mean, the supplement stores and industries is not propped up by vegans. You know, yeah. Pe- people of all dietary types of uh, taking supplements. Yeah. And if, if you're not eating a whole food plant-based diet, you're, you know, well, if you're on this kind of standard Western diet, you're not getting enough potassium. You're not getting enough magnesium. Fiber. You're not getting enough fiber, which is the thing that people don't really talk about. So if you're on a whole food plant-based diet, there's just a couple of little insurance things that you need to take. And the veg one supplement's a great option. Okay. And the, I guess for those people that have um, had an issue with the whole food plant-based diet and have added animal products in and felt better. How do you explain that? Well, potentially, I guess if they're adding animal products back in, they're taking something else out. So it is possible. I mean, we talk about eating a healthy whole food plant-based diet. We talk about eating the PCRM power plate, but for some people, certain foods aren't going to agree with them. And someone asked this question, Neil Bernard, last night, a very similar question. And he said, well, look, if if you're allergic to strawberries or strawberries upset your GI tract and, you know, we can't figure out why, then don't eat strawberries. If you find that eating an awful lot of legumes upsets your GI tract and is giving you bloating and other problems, then you may find that taking uh, your beans out and putting in a piece of chicken every day, suddenly you feel better. It's not necessarily the animal meat, which is some sort of magic pill. It's Mm. the fact that you're taking out some sort of trigger. You're taking out a trigger and you're putting something else back in. And I mean, I'm not uh, completely up to speed on the cases that you're mentioning. And I wouldn't like to speculate on an individual's medical history without their permission or anything. But I think if you have been, 
even within, I think the key to a healthy whole food plant-based diet is variety. And again, that translate back, translates back into science. We look at the outcome of the American Gut Project. The number one determinant for health and functional gut microbiome is the number and diversity of plants that you eat. So there are certain trends out there in the kind of plant-based world, you know, um, for example, being, you know, completely fruitarian, for example. Now, I've seen people, I've seen medical studies showing benefits for that. But if you're eating only fruit, I mean, there's a lot of benefits from eating perhaps even, you know, six or 800 grams of fruit per day. But if you're getting all your calories from fruit, I imagine drink, you're consuming several kilograms of fruit per day. One issue there could be fructose, so fruit sugar. Which is a FODMAP. Uh, which is a FODMAP, yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's something that needs to be broken down by your gut microbiome. And if you're um, consuming two and a half kilos of fruit or three kilos of fruit every day, you are going to, you're very likely that you're going to get some bloating. You may even induce small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and you're kind of exceeding the normal threshold for your body's ability to, de- to, to deal with fructose. Diversity. So it's about balance and diversity. The PCRM power plate, which you're familiar with, is just a really quick visual guide to that. It's not about a quarter of the plate is whole grains. Then you've got your legumes and your fruits and vegetables. Okay. You know, so balance. And where do sort of these, I guess, more specialised foods that you hear people talking about like kefir or kraut or even probiotic supplements, where do they come into play? Is it something that if you have a healthy gut, is that something that you need to focus on or is that something for someone to focus on who perhaps has taken antibiotics? Yes, you're talking. So two issues there. Number one is fermented foods and number two is probiotic supplements. So fermented foods, like you mentioned, you can have your, your water kefir, or your, even your kombucha or your sauerkraut, et cetera, et cetera. And there's lots of studies showing that like the Blue Zones populations have some form of fermented food, particularly a fermented plant-based food, as part of their normal dietary intakes. And certainly in Korea, which is a very long-lived and healthy population, their, their intake of kimchi has been related to... Um, um, dietary benefits. Now, when you, in, in the inflammatory bowel disease world, which is like my entry point for all this stuff, when you look at, if you try and find some studies that show that these foods exert a kind of a clinical benefit, unfortunately, there haven't been that many studies. So there's huge theoretical benefits. There's huge epidemiological benefits. But for example, there was one study looking at giving a fermented I think it was fermented soy, but I might be wrong on that, to patients with ulcerative colitis. And they did notice that some of the stool markers of inflammation went down, and they did notice that the production of beneficial short-chain fatty acids went up, but they didn't show clinical benefit. You know, it was a small study. So I generally am an advocate for taking fermented foods. They also bring healthy fiber-loving bacteria ready-made into your gastrointestinal tract, we know that the healthy bacteria within fermented foods do end up in your gut microbiome, but I don't view them as essential. And they're a nice little extra on your healthy whole food plant-based diet. And also they've got a really interesting taste profile. And if you like kimchi on the side of your plate, which I do, that's fantastic. Go for it. And I, I certainly encourage it. But again, uh, kimchi, a lot of these fermented foods are very high in salt and which may be a negative thing, uh, certainly uh, um, in Korea, where they eat like, I can't remember the numbers, like kilos of kimchi per person per year. They've got like breakfast kimchi and lunch kimchi. Um, they've got a very, a lot of favorable health outcomes associated with that. And they're a great source of B 
vitamins and fiber, but they've also got a very high incidence of stomach cancer, which has been related to their heavy intake of salted foods. So okay. I think I think just as a nice little side with your plant-based diet. Okay, perfect. And probiotic supplements? So probiotic supplements, for those of you who don't know, so probiotics are kind of ready-made uh, bacterial strains. So you buy them at a health store and there might be one bacterial strain or maybe a few bacterial strains. And the reason that they're available and sold is because they have been, uh, the different strains have been shown to have some potential benefit to human health. And I do use them in my clinical practice, but I use them in very specific circumstances. And every probiotic is different. There's like millions of different strains that have been studied. So there are certain strains in certain clinical scenarios where I prescribe them. That'll be certain situations for patients with ulcerative colitis or um, patients with a condition called pouchitis, which is a condition you get after you've had surgery for inflammatory bowel disease. And I sometimes prescribe probiotics for people who've had a bit of gut upset after a course of antibiotics or a gastrointestinal infection. But those are the only circumstances. And I usually prescribe them for four to six weeks. Um, and I always prescribe them with healthy dietary advice towards a healthy whole food plant-based diet. Um, I don't advocate taking them as like a daily dose. Which I, I think a lot of listeners may think is necessarily necessary um, because there's so much, you know, it's marketing, right? The, so many the, ads around probiotics and gut health and it would be easy for one to think that it's just a supplement that you should take ongoing, like B12. Yeah, the, the probiotic industry globally is worth about $60 billion a year. So where there's big money, there's going to be big claims and heavy marketing. And I haven't seen any good studies convincing me that I need to take a probiotic every day to be healthy. Uh, we know that a healthy whole food plant-based diet is going to encourage a healthy gut microbiome. We know that physical exercise encourages a healthy gut microbiome. We know that spending time outside, getting enough sleep, encourages a healthy gut microbiome. And we know that avoiding unnecessary medications helps to promote a healthy gut microbiome. So I, I haven't seen anything that would convince me that if I do all of that, I'm on a healthy whole food plant-based diet, do I need to take a probiotic supplement? I don't think so. Okay. And final question, because we, uh, we need to head back over to the conference for lunch. Oh, great. And we've covered enormous territory, but I think whilst talking about gut health, um, it would be remiss of me not to ask, about how indicative the frequency and also the texture of of stool or poop we can we can say poop on the show <laughs> um, is our poop and what it how frequent we do have a bowel movement what it looks like um, is that indicative of our gut health? Well, thanks for bringing up poop. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't let you get through. No, that's that fine. That's fine. That's cool, man. <laughs> so, really interestingly, um, so. If, if your listeners want to take out their phones right now and Google the Bristol stool chart. So I think it, the Bristol stool chart has not been around for too long. I think it might have been just uh, drawn up within the last 20 years at, at um, a Bristol Royal Infirmary in the UK. So in order to make conversations easier with patients, between patients and gastroenterologists, they drew up a, a, a chart, the Bristol stool chart, which rates your stool from one through five. So type one to type five. And type one is like a really constipated stool. Type five is like a really watery and diarrheal stool. And like type three, they held up 
as the paradigm of a perfectly formed stool. So that helps us in conversations with our patients. And patients always get a bit of a giggle, actually, because we're they, they, we start into that conversation. I reach in the drawer and I pick out the Bristol stool chart and I put that in front of them <laughs> and it's color. And I say, I'm sorry, I know that looks a bit icky. We've got to do it. But, but we've got to do this. Can you just show me what you're describing? You know, and it helps the conversation. What was really interesting was the Bristol stool chart was drawn up when microbiome research was in its infancy, if that. Okay. A couple of years ago, a group of researchers performed microbiome analysis and correlated, looked at the correlation between your gut microbiome and your Bristol stool chart. And it just turned, it turned out if you have a healthy and diverse gut microbiome with adequate amounts of fiber loving bacteria. So if you were like in the microbiome blue zone, if you want, those people tended to have the type three. Um, and when I, yeah, when I read that, okay, so I'm a complete gastro nerd. But when I read that, I thought, well, isn't that, isn't that incredible? Because the uh, Bristol stool chart was invented before microbiome research was a thing. And now they've done this microbiome analysis. And yes, if you have, you know, a relatively healthy form stool, which is easy to pass, and you're going to the bathroom perhaps two or three times per day, that's probably a good indicator that you've got a healthy gut microbiome. There you go. Now we should go and get something to eat. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. I, and coffee. Remember yeah, coffee. Absolutely. We'll get yeah. a coffee on the way. Thank you very much for sharing what is a tremendous amount of knowledge that you have. I look forward to getting you back on the show. I think I've got plans to have the Happy Pair guys on in, oh, in fantastic. Stage, so we could even um, have, the, have the four of us on and do a group conversation. Oh, that'd be awesome. About, you know, the happy gut and what you guys have seen in terms of the people that have gone through the program. As I said, for the listeners, all in the show notes, there will be links to Happy Gut uh, information. So if anyone wants to check that out, I certainly encourage that. Is there anything that you would like to say that you think that we didn't cover or how can people get in touch with you if they would like to connect with you on social media, see the science that you post or ask some questions? Yeah. So I'm one of those guys who posts pictures of his food. Sorry, everybody. But I, I always post a picture of my food with like a nice evidence-based nugget with some actionable information and some links to some interesting studies, which people can go and read. Um, so you can find me on Instagram at Devon Gut Doctor. So at Devon Gut Doctor. So that's probably the easiest way to find me really. And do I have anything else to say? I just eat more plants. I mean, if you've listened to this podcast and you, you don't want to be on a healthy whole food plant-based diet and you think becoming someone who eats a blue zone style, 100% plant-based diet sounds intimidating for you, that's fine. I get it. But just eat more plants. Pump your fiber up. Pump your fiber up. All right, man. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Loved it. Cheers, Simon. Wow. Wasn't that super cool? Just so, so interesting. And if you listen to Dr. Will Bolsowitz in episode 17, previously on, on this show on the Plant Proof Podcast, a lot of his points were reinforced by Alan today. What I think is super clear is that there isn't strong evidence to support consumption of animal products for gut health. But we do know a diversity of plants in the diet is key for building a bacterially diverse gut. In 2012, I just want to share a study with you. In 2012, the largest study on human microbiome was published by Dr. Robert Knight. And Dr. Knight looked at over 15,000 samples, fecal oral skin samples, from over 11,000 people in Australia, UK, 
and USA, if my memory serves me correctly, they found that those who consumed more than 30 different types of plants a week had much more diverse microbiomes than those who consumed 10 or less. Not only did these people have greater microbiome diversity, but also had lower resistance to antibiotics. And in that study, the researchers hypothesized that although hard to conclude anything about causality, that this antibiotic resistance in those who consumed less plants may be due to those that had meat-heavy diets, eating meat that had been treated with antibiotics. I'll add this study to the show notes uh, as well for you to look at in your own time if you're interested. And I also posted a study on Instagram at plant underscore proof yesterday, which looked at dietary fat and gut microbiome. So if you haven't checked that out, please do because it's super interesting as well. In summary, folks, vegan or not, the diversity in plants in your diet is absolutely key. And if you do eat meat, knowing the source hasn't been treated with antibiotics would be sensible. Not that I'm recommending you to do that, but but food selection is completely your choice of course, and I certainly acknowledge that a diet predominantly plant-based with some meat is so, so much more healthful than the standard Western diet. I don't like to make anyone feel bad about their diet. That's the last thing I want. I just want the science to be known, and then you can make up your own mind based on the facts and, and what works for you. To me, I have so much respect for anyone, even people just listening to this podcast show for wanting to take control of their health. Finally, before we close this one out, if you do want to support the show and found today's episode interesting, please share it with friends, colleagues, family, etc. Posting it on social media helps others find the content and you just never know who may end up listening and how it could better their health. If you have a few minutes spare when this episode ends, please leave a review on iTunes. And for anyone wondering, the show is now available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and plantproof.com. I recommend listening on the iTunes app for anyone using an Apple phone and Spotify for everyone else. I'll see you in the next episode, friends. I hope you have a fantastic week. Peace.